Hi, it's Joanna Oki here. Welcome back to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have back the fabulous Sarah Reigelhoff from Grow My Team, who is talking all about her experiences in acquisitions and exits, in the multiple acquisitions and exits she has been engaged in over the last 10 plus years as she's been growing many of her business and exiting from them. If you have not heard part one of this two-part series, I highly recommend you go back and look for part one because in part one, we talked about Sarah's multiple experiences in buying, growing and selling businesses. And we dig into this concept of acquisition as a growth strategy. We also look at the hard lessons that she learned and her $1 million mistake. But here in part two of this two-part series, we're looking specifically at the lessons that she learnt from these mistakes at Exit and how she's applied these lessons to the way that she now approaches growing a business. We also discuss how to grow a business if sale is in mind for the future. And we also look at some great lessons on how you can acquire fabulous teams for less than you might expect. So buckle in, here we go for part two of our two-part series with Sarah. Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back. I want to continue the discussion that we had in the last episode. You touched on so many great learnings that I think are absolutely applicable to a lot of businesses that I see, well, both in the acquisition mode, but also in just this whole idea of what are they building and will that work? for exit, which is a really interesting experience that you've shared. So it's quite unique. I mean, I I meet many people who who buy and sell businesses, but I meet many, 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 many more who selling a business or buying a business is a rare event. And so I think your insights here are just like particularly useful for that set of businesses because they don't have the chance to have a go, do it right or wrong, learn, and then then move on to the next one. You know, quite often this is a one or two shot game for them. And that's why I think it's such important information. So rounding back then on some of your experiences and the things that you've learnt about growing a business to exit. So it sounds like you thought you had a bit of a formula for what might work on exit because it was a good business to run. And I quite often say that the best businesses to run are often the best businesses to sell as well. But you've demonstrated one instance of where a good business to run isn't necessarily a good business to sell. So do you think some of those learnings, have those learnings impacted how you build businesses now and grow businesses now? Yes, definitely. And I think kind of what you've got to think about or what I think about now is like, what will I be selling? Mm. So I know what I'm building and what's important to a buyer. And so what is that set now when you step that out? It's like, is it likely, and we never know until we get there, but is it likely 
that I'm selling a parcel of clients that are going to get plugged into a bigger organization? Or is it more likely that I'm going to sell this whole brand and business and team and everything to either just somebody who wants to buy it or maybe a bigger organization that kind of buys companies but continues to run them as one as their own brands or whatever? So you don't always know, but I think it's trying to think about what is it that I'm going to be selling. So with Wealth Enhancers, as an example, which was a millennial financial planning company, my ex-husband bought me out in the end, but I know I was the CEO of that company and I, I was building it to sell. But I knew that business was unlikely to be purchased by a bigger company to just merge it in with theirs. I knew that it would likely be purchased as its own brand purely because there weren't really any other millennial financial planning businesses and there weren't really any other businesses that were structured like ours. And so, you know, the downside of building something that's so new and unique and amazing and like all your own fancy stuff is that you've got less buyers potentially because Mm. they can't just plug you into what they're doing. You're going to be asking them to start doing something totally different. So if you're going to be asking them that, you got to give them the team, the technology, the processes, the systems and everything. So what I saw for Wealth Enhancers when I was building it as CEO was that it would likely get acquired by actually like an institution mm. who would want access to the millennials and the brand. They'd want to actually keep the brand. So they might put in a CEO, they might be able to leverage some of the fact that they were a huge institution with massive marketing budget, but the actual team that we constructed and the way we were doing business would likely stay the same. That was kind of what I had my eye on Mm. for that business. And that was also based on some of the larger banks and insurance companies talking to me and saying, it's so interesting what you're doing. If you ever want to sell, talk to us. Right. And that is brilliant. I think that's really something for for people who are building a business to focus on. Because indeed, if they're building to sell, the point of what we're talking about here is you may not be building something that has a high sale value. And if that's important to you, then rather than just focusing on growth and building the business you want, you also have need to have a mind for the buyer and what will make a good saleable asset at the end of the day. But I think this is a really good point. You actually went out and spoke to people who you thought might be buyers and said, what do you value? Is that right? And was that the part of the discussion for you understanding what you needed to build, how you needed to build it so that it would have a value to some of these potential buyers? Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't at the point where I was really pursuing that, but anytime I had a sense that someone was interested, I'd have a discussion to try to get more insight. So I wasn't being like massively strategic about it, but it was pretty obvious from my knowledge of the industry and knowledge of where all these other businesses were at was that, I mean, we were the first business in Australia to service millennials and we were the largest. Most of the people that were coming into the market were looking to us for guidance. So, Mm. you know, I knew it was pretty unlikely that there was another millennial-based financial planning business that was going to buy us and just plug the clients in. So partly conversations and partly my knowledge of the industry, but it was absolutely the next step that I was going to take when I was getting closer to maybe wanting to sell in that three-year period or whatever. I would have started lining up those discussions with those buyers and having slightly more formal discussions than what I was having. Yeah, clever. I like it. I like it. Okay, so what else then? In the last episode, you pointed to a few particular strategies that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you had taken from your previous experience, i.e. putting in place a team that would continue to run 
when you weren't there, if you weren't there on sale and having the marketing systems that would still continue to run while you weren't there. Is that right? Have I understood that part of the process correctly? Absolutely. And I also do that because I don't really want to do that stuff anymore. (laughs) For my own pleasure as my contribution to the company, I don't want to be the marketer and the salesperson and the ops manager and the finance person. Like I like to be the CEO. I like to kind of just pull the levers and look at the things that are happening. More than anything, I like to be creative, be visionary and just lead and grow my team. That's what I think I'm good at as well. And so I feel like building a business like that is also just more attractive to be sold because I can replace myself as CEO. And when I'm that kind of CEO, like I'm not doing that much anyway. Like as in, I'm not a cog in the wheel, if that makes sense. I'm doing a lot from my brain power and I'm contributing a lot, but it's not like literally I'll be very transparent. I had a breakdown last year and I took a month off and I just told my team, I'm out. I can't do anything. You guys do your work. <laughs> like, and they're like, that's fine. We know what we're doing. And they just do their thing. Like the business to a degree runs without me. It doesn't, it wouldn't run successfully for very long without me. But the kind of business I want to build now is a business that everybody is very empowered to kind of own their part of the business. And everybody knows how we all work together to make the magic happen. Um, I'm not a micromanager in any way anymore. And I think that helps me build businesses that are probably more attractive for sale as well. Just my Mm. own selfish reasons (laughs) to not want to have to do all the work. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. I'm sold. I'm with you. (laughs) And I think I've always been very interested in the grow my team idea. I'm a strong believer in going outside your sort of local area to try and work out who it is that you could bring into your organization to help provide different skill sets. What you're talking about here, I can, I feel many people would hear what you're saying and say, okay, well, that's fabulous, but I'm a small business or I'm a, you know, small to medium business. I can't afford to go and just grab all of these different people on, you know, full wages to come in. You know, I need the I need the financial backing to be able to do that. But maybe here we can talk a little bit about Grow My Team because I feel like, you know, my understanding of what you do is is really about making that far more accessible for businesses. Yeah, that's a very very good point actually because I think disclaimer and all this like none of these businesses are huge you know the, mm. the three main companies I've sold the sale price has been between two and 2.5 million dollars so I mm. seem to be an expert at selling businesses for just over two million dollars <laughs> I've been to expand and broaden my expertise over the next 10 years <laughs> um, but yeah no so they're not huge companies uh, to date that I've been running they're absolutely kind of that small growing enterprise Um, But what I've been able to do is engage team members that are based in other parts of the world that are a lot less costly than an Mm. Australian CFO, for example, or marketing manager or whatever it may be. So, you know, my marketing manager in Grow My Team, who's come with me, she was my marketing manager in Wealth Enhancers. She's now with me in Grow My Team. She's, I think, costs me $36,000 a year or something like that. And she is... Mm gun like she is really 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 amazing and we're talking high level marketing you know she does the whole strategy like a 150 grand employee here in australia absolutely yeah absolutely like she's amazing and she doesn't have anyone working under her just yet other than like an ounce a graphic design company that we use but 
you know, she'll build that. We're a smallish company right now. We're growing, about to raise money and everything. She'll build that team. Like I won't build her team for her. She'll build her team. She's absolutely my marketing manager. Mm. And I just love that. I just love the idea that you have accessibility if you just expand, you know, your mindset. Because many business owners I find have also dabbled in offshoring and and dabbled, didn't work took too much energy. So they sort of discard that and say, well, quality offshore isn't the same as quality onshore. And I call garbage on that. Like I just say, well, that's why would someone onshore like inherently be any better than any other, (laughs) you know? It's actually racist, you know? Absolutely. And I know people aren't meaning to be, but like, let's just see it for what it is. Like you can, you got to be kidding yourself if you really think that Australians or Americans or wherever you're from are the best in the world at every single thing and you can't possibly find anyone else. Like it's just ludicrous when you really break Mm. it down. But yeah, I mean, I think the industry or the idea of offshoring, outsourcing, whatever you call it, like the industry is a lot bigger. There's a lot more options and opportunities now. And I don't even see what I do as offshoring or outsourcing. I'm building a team just exactly Mm. as I would build a team locally they just happen to be based in other parts of the world and that is exactly that's it and that's the problem i think often when people look at offshoring because they have a lower a, a lower cost of engagement they then say okay i'm just going to give them quite often it's just all the shit that no one else wants to do here and they suddenly think that someone overseas will magically be able to pick it up and you know make sense of the crap in but crap in crap out is what i think but also a failure to engage yeah like you engage your onshore, you know, in the same office kind of staff members. Exact same onboarding process. Absolutely. Like why would it be any different? And exact same job description, exact same job advertisement, exact same time taken to hire, the the actual recruitment process. Like if you do a series of three interviews, do a series of three interviews. Like you are finding a team member who needs to be skill fit, experience fit, cultural fit, all of the things. They just happen to be based somewhere else. Another term I hate, and I, you triggered me on it because of what you were saying about crapping crap out, is this term virtual assistant. I'm like, well, what are you hiring? Is this a personal assistant or like an executive assistant that works offshore? So they need to be able to calendar manage, you know, know you quite intimately, your life, email manage. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's a personal assistant that you're hiring. But people use this term virtual assistant that it's like they're going to hire a robot who can just do all this magical tasks for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, straight away at Grow My Team, when we have someone say, I want to hire a VA, I'm just like, all right, let's just go back to basics because I don't even know what a VA is. Like, yeah. what are you actually trying to hire? Is this a digital marketing person? Is this an operations manager? Is this a, like, what are the jobs they're doing? And then we'll, we'll put the job, the title around it and the job description because most mm. of the time they're not trying to hire a personal assistant that's virtual. They're trying mm. to hire a social media manager who can also do bookkeeping. And I'm like, well, when you find those unicorns, let me know. (laughs) Because they don't exist in Australia and they don't exist anywhere else. You were so right. Most marketers are not that great at bookkeeping. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm absolutely with you. (laughs) Now, look, we've probably gone a long way uh, out of our talking about acquisitions and sales. But I think, I guess, bringing it back to the point of all of this, it's about looking in a broader sense at your business and finding ways. 
and and overlooking the barriers that you think are there to creating a business that is saleable and transferable to someone else if you're not going to be involved. And these are just strategies in helping get there, I guess. Absolutely. And I, I guess the point we're talking about here is that for less money, you can build an amazing team yeah. that's running your whole company. So even if you are a smaller business and you're, you know, you're listening to this thinking, oh, that's all well and good, but my business is only turning over half a million dollars or whatever, like half a million dollar business can be you know have quite a team if mm. you're thinking outside the box so yeah. you become a better business for someone to buy because you've got more resources to create more systems and processes and handle the marketing engine and all of that kind of thing so yeah Absolutely. All right. And now I just want to change tack a little bit and talk about your perspectives on acquisitions now. So we started in our previous episode talking together about your feelings about acquisitions as a growth strategy and that being a good strategy, at least for for the businesses that you're involved in at that time. Where are you at now in your thoughts on acquisitions as a growth strategy? When was the last acquisition you did? Well, I mean, when it comes to growing my team, I would love to acquire businesses to grow mm. like absolutely <laughs> i haven't found any so yeah. i mean that's because a lot of our i guess competitors or other people in the space are more the bpo model where they have an office in manila or jakarta or johannesburg and people are going and that's not our model our model is professionals who work from home mm. but if i could acquire another business that's a little smaller or the same size as ours and merge it in that'd be amazing because you know overnight you basically double your size mm. so, i mean that would be my ideal but I, I don't feel that i have in my hunting i haven't found it mm. so that's that i have just acquired a business airbnb hands-free it's an airbnb property management business so but that excites me as well just a whole new business i've got a team that that are in there running that i'm a significant investor in the business my my old operations manager slash integrator is the major shareholder. It's actually my super fund that's invested in in my portion, but she's actually the main shareholder and, and running the business. But, you know, that was exciting for me because it was a two-year-old business that was already turning over about $1.5 million in revenue. And mm. straight away, I'm like, that's exciting to me. Mm. Like once a business gets to that size, you've got a lot of levers you can pull, a lot of things you can do. and not having to struggle my own way, you know, starting up a company is mm. exciting and fun, but it's hard to get to that first meal. It's hard to get over these different growth humps. Mm. And this is a case where the founders, he's like me, he's started something else that he's more excited about mm. and he wants to go on that path and he's, he's a bit burnt out from it, which I get, it's happened. And, mm. you know, he's, he's a great person. I really like him. I really, our negotiation was amazing. It was fair. We get on very well from a personality perspective, very values aligned and negotiation was just, here's the initial deal. Okay, well, I like that, but I'd like this. Yeah, that's fair. How about this? Yeah, that's fair. How about that? And just felt like the whole way <laughs> There was no resistance. A very different negotiation to the issue you wanted to talk about. Yeah, totally different. <laughs> yeah, we would end up just sitting on. And we was all done via Zoom because I live in the US and he's in Byron Bay in Australia. But you know, we'd end up sitting on our Zoom calls that my business partners had to watch <laughs> later to catch up. And we'd gone over an hour just chatting about like stuff that we had in common. But you know, that's a much nicer way to do business, I think. And we still did all the financial modeling and all the due diligence and all of that, but it was just nice. I just knew I'm doing business with a good person and I just don't have the same feelings that I had yeah. in previous. And we're a couple of months into the handover. And as it sounds like it's going really well from 
from the girl who's running it. So, mm. yeah. And so how did you kick off on that? Because I think we, to give context to my question, I think we have lots of listeners who are generally interested in this idea of acquiring a business, get into a, you know, a new business set or, you know, quite often we have um, listeners who are coming out of corporate and looking to use their skill set by acquiring a business. But just generally speaking, what was the background work? So you obviously started, well, I don't know if it's obvious or not, maybe you didn't. Did you start by saying, we're looking for a particularly interesting type of business, let's go find a business? Is that how it started? No, like randomly, my I'm in EO, Entrepreneurs Organisation, mm. and uh, one of my forum mates, he and I were looking at, this was actually before I came back into the forum because you're not allowed to do business with forum mates, but we were looking at potentially buying a business together. And then I ended up moving back to Colorado and rejoining the forum. So he sent it to me late last year just as something he'd come across in his search. So he was just on, there's a website called Flipper. And I guess it was like an email thing that came out. It was just something that was was interested in. He quickly lost interest and I quickly gained interest. So Mm. it was very random. I'd never thought about buying an Airbnb property management business, but it was just something that I liked. Mm. And I'm a very, even with my ideas, my business ideas, I feel them. Like I like to sit with them and if I'm still obsessing over it in a month, two months, six months, like that's a pretty good sign yeah. to do it because yeah. there's a lot of things that float through me that I don't kind of latch onto. Mm. And this business I really liked. I reached out fairly early on, started doing a little basic due diligence, just like looking at the IM and everything. And then it got sold. And I was like, oh, well, wasn't meant to be. Let it go. Mm. And then a month or two months later, I got an email. Oh, it's not sold. It's back on the market. The deal fell through. And I was like, great just picked up discussions again and started deep diving. And it was just a matter of, I don't know, there's just something that innately attracted me to the business. And then once I dove into it, the numbers looked good. And then when I figured out I had the perfect person to run it and offered her the opportunity as actually a primary shareholder. And I've ended up investing through my super fund, so I'm not even actually running it, but I just liked the business. Mm. And so can we dig into that a little bit more? Because quite often what happens, I think, is people become more skilled in an area. Say, for example, you growing and buying and selling businesses. Some of the skill set that you have, you start labeling with it just felt right. But usually what is in there is some a skill set that is really useful perhaps to other people. So if we dig into that just a little bit more, what were the signs for you that it looked like a good business? If you can sort of like what gave you that feeling? What was it when you looked at it that gave you that feeling you could make it work? I mean part of it is who was this founder and what were they able to do and who am I? Or who is the person that's going to run the company and what are they able to do? Where are our skill sets? You know, looking for that opportunity, I suppose. Mm. But what really attracted me to this one was the fast growing nature of it. So, you know, I think I said the stat earlier, only 4% of businesses get to Mm. a million and it had gotten there within two years. Mm. So, and having, you know, started a number of companies myself that I've managed to achieve that million dollar revenue mark, I know how hard that is. Yeah. Yeah. And how much work it takes. And so that's always a sign that, you know, they're onto something. Yeah. It had gotten to that point quickly, I guess. Yeah. Getting to it at all and getting to it that quickly, I was like, all right, well, that's something. It was already profitable as well. Mm. So that was something else that I thought, you know, I've, I've run companies for the most part that have taken about four or five years to get profitable. Mm. Admittedly, I, I try to grow and that's why I'm kind of reinvesting, but still, you know, I know how tough that is. And then from a founder skill set, 
you know, he was very strong operationally and systems and really hadn't invested anything in in marketing. Mm. So it had all grown through word of mouth. And I knew that my team and the team that we could put in, like we're actually really strong on marketing and operations and all of that. But that was somewhere that I knew we could get extra leverage. You could see the upside, I guess, you know, that that linked in with your skill set. Brilliant. And so then how did you work out the valuation model for it? Is that something you did yourself or did you use advisors to work out, you know, what you felt the value was for the purchase price? Yeah, I mean, we kind of anchored around his asking price. Mm. And then it was on this one of these websites where it was up for sale and he'd put the purchase price that he wanted on there. So that was becomes an anchor point if you're familiar with negotiating. Often that first number that goes out is kind of what the deal gets anchored around. Um, but we ended up doing a multiple of profit. So I think we ended up doing a mul- three times, just under three times profit. But my team, like when we analyzed the deal and normalized the profit and figured out how we would be able to run this business, you know, we were able to get that profit number up quite a bit higher. So we could feel like, well, there's that upside there as well. Like this is actually potentially worth more than once we do our magic, it's worth more than what we're paying for it. Um, in its current state, it, it's worth what it is, but we knew what we could do there. So that was essentially how we kind of came to it. Fabulous. And I mean, in this case, it wasn't a huge purchase in terms of the price. So I didn't involve extensive like advisors and things. And I think that's part of it as well. Like mm. how much money are you putting on the line and what's mm. it worth? There's always that risk assessment that we're making as investors. Like if you've got a few million dollars in cash and you're looking to buy a business for $100,000, mm. are you going to spend $20,000 on advisors? No, because <laughs> one, you know, the $100,000, if you lose it actually isn't probably going to change your life like you will survive yeah if you've got a hundred thousand dollars in the bank and you're going to buy a two million dollar business you'd want to spend twenty thousand dollars on advisors yeah yeah, (laughs) do you know what i mean like i think it's just assessing what you need and and where you're at and what experience you've had before as well so yeah we were pretty comfortable with the the heads together that were buying it that we could we could do it ourselves and was there anything you know reflecting on the acquisition experience is there anything that you think you had learnt from the past that you found really useful that you then brought to the table in terms of this acquisition other than trusting your gut more perhaps more in terms of finding that cultural fit but was there anything else right that's like the big one for me right now but yeah the way that I structured the deal the way that I structured the tranche payment that we actually put a value because basically we're buying a rent roll of properties Mm. plus the team and the system and all of that, but we did a, about a 60-40. So I actually did a similar deal mm-hmm. to the one um, that I'd done, but I am going to pay the guy. I'm not yeah, I'm right. not there to... And, and it's only a six-month earn out. Right. So he was willing to take around 60%, but it's not two years. He's going to get the rest of his money within six months. And that was something that he and I negotiated that was fair. And I basically straight up said to him, like, this happened to me. Mm. I, I was talking to him when he was still negotiating with other people. I'm like, don't do a deal like this. And I'm happy to be like, literally, if I'm losing clients after six months, that's not on you. Mm. Like that's on me. Mm. And I'm going to do a fair deal as well. So we we put a value on each of the properties that we were buying that tied into that overall value based on previous 12 months revenue that that property was contributing. And then if any of them fall off because of the service prior to us coming on, we don't pay for them in the second tranche. Mm. If they fall off because of our service, we still pay. And we agreed on that as well, that we would have a discussion with any client who left and Mm. find out why they were leaving. So I feel like, you know, on both sides, I felt comfortable protecting myself if a whole bunch of clients exit quickly. 
Yeah. But I also feel comfortable to own it. But if they leave after six months, that's on us. That's not on him. Mm, that's a really great strategy. So um, if people yeah. are listening in to this, I think that's a great one to add to the toolkit. I really love it. And so I guess rounding all of this out, I think this has been just such a fabulous discussion. We've touched many different areas here. <laughs> but I guess <laughs> just, you know, sort of big picture overview, reflecting back on your experiences. Here we're talking our listening audience, businesses who are buying and selling, but also brokers and corporate advisors and accountants, you know, who are part of that deal team where some of this information is just as useful as well, because I think it's really useful for us all as advisors to understand our clients' positions as well. So bearing in mind that sort of audience, is there any sort of lasting comments, any lasting thoughts about insights and lessons learned over these many years of acquiring and selling? It's a big question. It's fine if there's not. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, and I've said it already, but really the big one for me right now is doing business with who I feel are good people. And, you know, that's in my limited experience, but the issues I've had have been where I've known the deal hasn't been good based on the personality slash culture slash values fit. And you know what? I think the other lesson on it is if that is the case and you want out, just do a deal that you're comfortable with. Mm. You know, you kind of protect yourself in the way that you do the deal. I think there's a lot more creativity that you can build into deals. I I did a really interesting one that I'm not going to go into right now, but it was with my ex-husband when I was selling out of Wealth Enhancers. And I think the way that we put that deal together was there was a lot of complexity in it to protect both sides. And I think we can build a lot more complexity into our deals, which gives us more levers to pull when we're negotiating than what often is the case. You know, often we're just talking about price and basic payment terms, but there is so much more Mm. that you can build into deals. Like very quickly on that one, he wanted to buy me out over time. And so what I did was shares would transfer as we bought. So that was part of the complexity and there was a lot more to it. But, you know, rather than just trusting that the payment would be made because of what had happened in my past. And I'd said to myself, I'll never do a deal again where I get, you know, a little bit upfront and I have to wait for my money. But I was like, well, if that's the clincher for him, how can I protect myself? And I was like, well, you can buy shares off me at any point at this fixed price for two years. And you can buy one share or 10 or a hundred or whatever. You know, that there's more levers we can pull than we think. I think there's more complexity we can build into deals than we think. And that will help satisfy everybody to get what they need and what's important to them. It's such a good point. And the reason why is other than it being an excellent point in terms of people thinking about it as a strategy, it's based on the concept of actually understanding what the other party really wants at base and what you want at base. That one element is something that I think quite often is absolutely overlooked, but understanding at core what the other party wants, understanding at core what is important to you can help you get creative about how you get there. So I love it. What a great point. Yeah, totally. Because there is just something you can give that the other person's like, yeah. oh, and you might be like, I don't mind about that. And they're just like, thank you. That gives me the security or the whatever that I need to make me feel good yeah. about this. And I do, with all of that being said, like it's easier to have those kinds of discussions when there's a level of trust and respect mm. just amongst the people involved. It's really hard to have those discussions when there's animosity. Mm. I think there's just two ways to negotiate. There's fighting. 
Mm. and there's egos and there's like, I've got to win this. And then there's like, when you come together with someone who we just want the same outcome, which is, you know, I don't want to own this business anymore and you do. And we we both want it to be successful Mm. and no one's trying to screw anyone. You know, you can actually have quite open discussions about what do you need? This is what I need. And I think it's hard. A lot of people want to keep those cards to their chest, but that's coming from that mindset that you have to win. Yeah, and is yeah. it really winning or is it creating a great deal for everybody? And it's also a really, really good point for the deal advisors as well, because I just couldn't count the number of times I've met people in the industry who've shared with me experiences of working with lawyers or accountants, you know, and particularly lawyers. I think they can be particularly bad at this. I say they as though I'm not in the industry, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but so many experiences that people have had with lawyers who will just go through contracts and just pull up anything that could be a risk and want it changed. But with this mindset, what we're talking about, well, what, what are the real risks? What do people really want? Yeah. Rather than being aggressive and argumentative about everything, like let's get real, get commercial and get to the core. Because you also want to eliminate there being a need to fight over something later. Yeah. <laughs> and so you kind of want to try to solve that up front, that everyone, like the main points of the deal are fair and everybody agrees like the deal that I did that went sideways it was not fair that we would not Mm. pay for a client who left two years after we had any communication with them Mm. there's no world in which that is a fair term and I just didn't see that because I thought it wouldn't happen but Mm. when I was there do I really want to go to court and have to prove why a client Mm. left two years later like that's just crazy Um, the term just wasn't fair well and how many learnings have you had from that now (laughs) so many but we hope for our listeners that taking them through this also provides a great warning story for them as look Sarah I just want to say a massive thank you to you've given us so much time so much insight there's so many things there that are just absolute gold nugget how do our listeners contact you if they want to access grow my team which you know I just massively endorse I think you're doing an absolutely brilliant thing and I have to say I have to say very public I think it's such a great thing that I'm working with you as well right now <laughs> for, for our team members so I, I think you're fabulous so please tell us how our listeners can find you I love it and I'm so excited about those candidates that got sent over to you <laughs> Sarah if they are at growmyteam.com.au is the easiest way to get me. I'm on all the social medias and all of that kind of thing as well. But yeah, send me an email. I'd love to talk with people about whatever's coming up for them after listening to this podcast. Brilliant. You are an absolute rock star. What a brilliant run through your history there. I absolutely love it. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been really fun. Well, that's it for our two-part series with Sarah Reigelhuff from Grow My Team. Now, if you'd like to contact Sarah, obviously she gave you those details, but if you were running along the beach or on your commute into work, perhaps you didn't have a penalty you. So don't fear. All you have to do is head over to our show notes or our podcast website at thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to find details of how to contact Sarah or her team at Grow My Team. Or you'll also be able to find a link through to her on LinkedIn if you want to connect. Now at our Deal Room Podcast website, you will also find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you 
or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions or preparing for sale or preparing for acquisitions. We've got a number of great services to guide businesses through these processes and help them prepare if we can get there in time enough before their acquisition or exit. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. So don't hesitate to book an appointment if you'd like to find out how we can assist. And finally, if you've enjoyed what you heard today, then please pop over to to your favourite podcast player and leave us a review. Look, we'd be ever so grateful. It's reviews like those from you that help us to expand our reach into other people who are interested in listening to some of our fabulous guests and these really interesting topics. And that's it. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this two-part series just as much as I did. And I just want to thank you, our listeners, for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast. Proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to The Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.